Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome along to Big Little Small Talk. You're with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan. I'm here today with a very special person I met just on the weekend, actually. I was at a Donate Life service of remembrance for people who have either received or given organ transplants, and I met this wonderful lady called April Hitsky. So welcome along to Big Little Small Talk, April. Thank you. So a few years ago, you were the recipient of a double lung transplant okay and what were the circumstances of you needing a double lung transplant what Um, happened leading up to that i'd say about eight years ago i was i had a flu um and i never really recovered from that flu and i got another flu and i was just very very sick and i started coughing and it never my cough never stopped for six years um so it became basically all they could figure out was it became an autoimmune disease um, which led to interstitial lung disease um, so what happened is my lungs started getting white all over them and it was hard um, like I think with emphysema it's soft lungs come up but mine became really hard and they couldn't figure out I went in for a lot of tests and I did a um, lung biopsy and they just couldn't figure out why this is going on and what's happening so um, I had that it kept getting worse and worse and I went from one specialist to another and then um, they did tell me um, when I went to the respiratory respiratory doctor in Brisbane that I was going to have to see they're going to refer me to a lung transplant specialist and I was just for me I don't know that was just not something that I wanted to hear because the idea of you know someone dying so I could have a set of lungs you know kind of bothered me um so what we did is instead we went to we heard about this guy in America that does stem cells so we went to America and had a lot of community um support they helped us get over there and i got this stem cell treatment um but by then my lungs were just way too far gone um we do think that it helped my heart but by the end of this treatment it was like 12 weeks like i went to america walking and then i came back in a wheelchair something happened like especially the last probably month that i was there something happened to my this thing that had gone slowly for six um years it just kind of progressed rapidly so, so I came. Just tell me, tell yeah. me what does having a stem transfer? What oh, is it called? Stem, stem cells. cells transfer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what they do is they get stem cells either from your own body or um, they got these from I think the Harvard Medical School. And I didn't want them from my own body because I just didn't know if they'd be you know be any good. But they get the stem cells and like for twelve weeks they would just um, infuse me with these stem cells. And what they're supposed to do usually stem cells go to the lungs first. Um, they go to the lungs and then the heart. Um, so that's what we were hoping is that it would, you know, make a difference in my lungs. And it's supposed to work within three months. And um, we just saw that it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. So, but a lot of people, when they have the kind of thing I had with no oxygen, it does affect their heart. So my heart was, you know, fine, thankfully. Um, so it affects your heart in a good way or a bad way? Oh, sorry. When, when you are losing oxygen, it can really, like I, I know a person and his wife had kind of the same thing and she had a heart attack or her heart failed because she wasn't getting oxygen. Because the heart has to work so much harder to yes, try and yeah. get the oxygen. And even one thing that showed that I wasn't getting oxygen was my, you know, it sounds kind of weird, but fingernails kind of um, 
do this slight little curl over. And one of the nurses at Tuma Base noticed it. And I was like, oh, it wasn't real noticeable, but it was something she noticed. And that just tells you your body isn't getting enough oxygen. So I went on to... I thought you were going to say that your nails were going blue. I was going to oh. say, I'm no doctor, but even I know that. Yeah. Yes. She noticed in your nails were going... Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. So this, I mean, this is when... So this is when I started to get really sick. And I did go to the emergency a few times because I lost my breath. I basically lose my breath daily it was it was really weird because I knew that day every day I woke up and I knew sometime today I'm going to lose my breath and it was something that went on for a few minutes I would just all of a sudden it would come on me and I would just lose my like it was like a fish out of water um and so I was on I was on oxygen and then I put the oxygen on probably when we came back to Australia and I never took it off until my transplant so for like six months I was on high oxygen and you can only turn your oxygen up so much so when the oxygen got to the highest level, I was kind of, it was kind of like, I was a bit scared because, you know, you can't turn it up anymore. So I'm like, okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, I felt, you know, like everything was going to be all right and had a very supportive family, my husband, and um, I have a little special needs daughter. So I think my thing was I really wanted to be around for her. I want to be strong. I've always wanted to be strong for her, be there and, you know, be able to do all the things that as a mom, you know, that I can do for her. Um, so I, so what happened is I came back um, and I just, it just became to the point where I didn't even want to, I couldn't get out. It just was too much effort to get the oxygen. And, and the fact that I might lose my breath, it was just so awful. So I just became kind of bedridden. I'd get up from the bed and then, um, go to a chair. Cause I was, we were staying at my mother-in-law's at that time. Cause we needed, you know, some help. So, and just even like, if we had to unplug my oxygen for like uh, just one minute, it just freaked me out, you know, that I wasn't getting oxygen. So this just got worse and worse. And I just, and there's a list of things you have to do to get on the lung transplant list. And I was too sick to get out and do it. So I was just, you know, laying, laying in the bed, just hoping, you know, that everything was going to be okay. Um, then my mom, she came over from America probably in, I think, May. And she was just like, look, you just need to get, we need to get you to the hospital. So one day I just woke up and I just went to the emergency room and never, and after that I didn't come back home. Um, I was at Toomba Base. They took care of me really well there, um, because in Brisbane, because I went and did the stem cells, they they're like, well, we don't know if you really want a lung transplant. We don't know if we want to give you one, and it's because they want to make sure you want it. Mm. So tell me, tell me about that. What what um, why did getting the stem transfer the stem cell? Why did they think that you weren't really committed to a transplant? Yeah, because I did tell them before I left for America, I said, I'm going to America to get stem cells and I, you know, don't really know how I feel about a transplant. And so they're like, the doctor was, they're so, they're so nice. They're, they're a really great group of doctors. But he just said, we don't really want you to go. We don't think you should go. And I went, went ahead anyway. So, you know, I thought I knew better, um, which I didn't, but yeah. So are they worried about you um, not being fully on board with getting a, re a, a transplant? Is that what they're worried about yes. they're mentally? Or yeah, yeah, exactly. They want to make sure, and I think they, it's a great process. They want to make sure that you're, you know, that you really want this because there's not a lot of, I mean, there's a shortage of, well, it sounds awful to say, but there is a shortage of organs. So, you know, a lot of people wait. A lot of people never get their set of lungs. Um, and usually what they want you to do is they want you to start the process early, so before you're really, really sick. But for me, I got really, really sick and then, you know, trying to do the process. And I hadn't walked for a long time. And they, you have to do a leg test, too, um, before you get, they'll give you a set of lungs. So, you know, I was just, like, so, so sick. Um, so what's the leg test? Um, you 
70 kilograms. Is it 70 kilograms? You have to have, be able to lift 70 kilos. Push, push, push with your legs. And I remember, because I hadn't really walked around except to that chair in the front room for, I'd say, six months. And I remember the physio. He even tells me now, he said, oh, I just was thinking, oh, my goodness, is she going to, you know, is this going to happen? Because he knew I was so sick and I could barely sit up on the table. So Nathan um, went back to back with me. Um, he had Nathan sit behind me because you have to sit on this high table. And then... I did it and I was just able, I don't even know how I was able to do it, but I was able to push that amount. Um, so I guess, oh, the part I missed to say, so I was at Trumbo Base Hospital and then they weren't sure at Prince Charles, um, you know, if they wanted me there yet. What they did is they had a couple psychologists come and talk to me to make sure that I wanted it. And at that time I did want it. You know, I'm like, okay, I want this. I want to live, you know, I want to survive. So then um, Trumbo Base Hospital called Prince Charles and they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, we'll have you come down and see what's happening. So they were kind of vague about it. Um, so that's when I went down there. The very first day I was down there, I did the leg test. And, um, yeah, they took really good care of me. And a physio would, I think the, the main physio, um, per, the person in charge of physio said that they were all kind of scared of me because I just could not breathe, you know. So for me doing, like, stand up and sit down, like, three of them was really, really hard. Um, so then, like, one day, was it the first day I got there? they let me know that they were gonna put me on the list. Because the, the part, I forgot to mention, at Tuma Base Hospital, they they helped me check off the list of things that I needed to do, which was very hard. Tell um, me about some of those things. What other things besides being able to push 70 kilos, which I don't think with me <laughs> and my normal lungs could ever do even, yeah. anyway? Yeah. yeah, well, you have to have like, you know, like, you know, I had to have a breast screen, I had to have like skin check and um, a couple vex um vaccinations and things like that um yeah so it was a list of those kind of things like just different things because they want to make sure before you go in there like if you have cancer any kind of skin cancer they won't you know give you a um you have to be free for two years from that so it's just all those kind of things they're looking for sure yes can i just back yeah. you up a little bit april the thing that i found apart from everything <laughs> incredible about your story i just want to go to that point where you thought that you had a bit of a lung infection and then suddenly someone's talking about transplant. This is before you went for the stem cell stuff. Was that, um, was that a shock to you? That well, you were so sick that they're talking about, you know, I would imagine you must have been on every medication and every... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a shock. Um, I don't know, looking back now, I don't know why it was a shock, but it was... Um, I think I'm kind of the person, like, I don't run to the doctor when I have some, like, I'm kind of, not that I don't like doctors, like, I, I think they're amazing, but I don't just run to the doctor if there's something a little wrong. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just going to see what's happening. So I, um, they gave me, before even that, they gave me a treatment. It's like, I looked up the drug and it's something they give to, like, chemo patients. So they were trying to get rid of the autoimmune disease. So for six months, I think it was, I would go in once a month for this, for this treatment, which made me really sick. Um, but that was one of the things they tried before saying, we're gonna refer you to the lung. And I wasn't, like at that time I could walk around, I would just get a coughing fit every night. Um, but I could walk around, I just couldn't exert myself too much. Or if it was, you know, if it was too cold or too hot, I'd cough. But I wasn't really, at that point, I wasn't that worried. And then all of a sudden one day I woke up and I was like, this is not going away. So, mm. yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, um, you mentioned before about um, the, sort of that you just were like a fish out of water. And my mother had lung cancer and I can remember a very oh. good friend of mine um, who was a nurse said to me that lung cancer patients often have this terrible anxiety because they think that they're gonna 
run out of oxygen and that they're not going to be able to get enough oxygen. Mm. Was that same sort of thing happening for you? Oh, yeah, I'd say I didn't think of it a lot, but except when I would do that thing where I lost my breath every day, I was just, you know, like if, like we had this, um, we got the kind of oxygen, like first I just had a little condenser and then we got the big machine um, and I just remember if it would happen, I just... I think I had a bell I'd ring because my mother-in-law's house is pretty long so and someone would come running and so I would have you know be like turn my oxygen up so it was yeah it was something I thought about mm. um, I bet they loved that bell in your house as sick as you were they probably <laughs> wanted to throw that bell up the other end of the hallway sometimes I'm sure you talk about your daughter Chloe and I want to talk about her in, in a little bit but let's go sure. back to they tell you were you in the hospital at Prince Charles when they said that they'd found a donor or yes tell me through the circumstances of that okay so I went in um that first day and got on the list and I was so happy that we you know we were just so excited that I was on the list and then um they were well I I could tell they were a bit worried about me which you know doctors don't usually they don't usually let you know their feelings but one of the doctors said oh the nurse long transplant now she's really worried about you and later I found out they had told my family that I probably only had a week to live um, because my lungs had become like little kind of honeycombs just really kind of not, not, not much there to go on so anyway that was the circumstance um, what was going on with my lungs and then so they're like oh we hope you get we hope we get a call this weekend and I didn't get a call that weekend but I got a call later on in the week um, they call me early in the morning and um, said we've we found you know lungs for you and I think I was kind of like it was really bittersweet because I knew the reason I was getting lungs like I said before is that someone had passed away so I kind of wasn't even excited but I was if that makes sense so kind of felt you know two ways about it so we're talking to right Rachel, I was going to call you, April Hitsky, April Hitsky, who's had a double lung transplant. And Nathan, April's husband is here, and we're going to talk to him in a little minute too, to um, talk about the experience of being with someone. So you'd been in hospital about a week. They tell you that you've got a donor. What happens after that? Yeah, I think it was 12, was it 12 days? Yeah, so they told me that. So they, um, I don't know, like, it's kind of a small detail, but I just remember they make you take a shower and... I, I hadn't really showered in a shower for a very long time, you know, since I was in hospital. So I just remember that even the getting into the shower was so awful and felt so awful. And the nurse was just like, you got to get in there and do it. Um, so that was, so I was all clean and ready. And, um, you know, they do all the, that special medication they put on, or the special stuff that really sterilizes everything. The betadine, so that you're completely yeah. yellow, is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's what it was, <laughs> yes. And um, and then, so what happened is that was early in the morning, and I think we ended up at, so just waited all day because the thing is with the organization sometimes it can be what they call a dry run if there's someone else who needs it more but I was on there I know they put me on the urgent list yeah so I think I laid there until like nine at night um they took me to theater and we were there a few hours just you know hoping that this these lungs are going to come through and they did that mm. that night so mm. yeah you have the surgery how long does that take is it the 12 hour mammoth 24 hours it was less than they thought yeah. it would be I think you're out in five we thought it was going to be six yeah they were actually surprised I think they said everything just went so well um, and another interesting thing about my lungs is what's the thing with the six lobes is it that everyone has f five lobes on their lungs um, so <laughs> I think that's what it is and the person I got the lungs from had six but what they did is when they cut that lobe off it fit perfectly so 
I thought that was really interesting. Almost meant yeah. to be. Yeah. And they talk about the the um, post surgery that you have that um, elation of being alive and sort of like a second life. Oh yeah. But then you have that guilt too, and you mentioned that about that someone was going mm. to um, had lost and a family was grieving, obviously for someone. Yes. So yes. How much of sort of psychological counselling do they give you when you before and after? Yeah, they don't give you any counseling for it, really. But I know that after, um, they just want you to realize and appreciate what you're given. So they kind of, you know, just that you're going to take, like I said, before you even get it, they want to make sure you're going to take good care of those lungs um, and that you're going to do all the things you're supposed to do that they ask. And that was kind of the main thing. And then afterwards, they, right away, they actually um, want, they try to encourage you to write a letter to your donor family. Um, Yeah. Tell me about that process. Yeah, um, well... You write a letter and you can't really, you have to be really careful what you say because they don't want, I wouldn't mind if, I'd love to know who, who the donor family was, but you know I mean? I understand there's different circumstances and they might not, you know, want to be known. So, but you're not supposed to, also you're not supposed to let them know hints of who you might be. So even when I was giving like a TV interview, I couldn't say when exactly I had my transplant because they don't want people to figure that out. They just for your privacy sake. So. Do you have much to do with other transplant people either donors or recipients is there much of a dare I say it you know organization or a committee or a club or something yeah even well even seeing a lot of the people in Brisbane get together a lot like after my transplant I um we had to stay in Brisbane for three months and I would go to physical therapy and you meet people like I met a lot of people who were waiting to get their transplant and that was really an interesting process it was really exciting like if you know, you heard that someone, you know, they're not in physio the next day because they are getting a transplant. And then one lady was, um, I don't know if I should say this, it's actually pretty sad. She couldn't get a match. Um, I think it was something with her blood type. So she, you know, so she, I know she was really hoping she'd get her lungs and she didn't get her lungs. So that's the thing that really hurts. You know, it really feels, um, and I also know a guy from Toowoomba. It was interesting because this, these, this guy and his wife who really supported me in the beginning, they came and talked to me about what it's like and, um, um, like the nurse coordinator had sent them to me and they and he's from Toowoomba and he's actually American too so that was really interesting and he passed away this year he had a lot of struggles so you have that you have those people you make those friends and then you know I'm doing so good and then you have these people you go and they're just really trying to get through and they're having a lot of issues because a lot of issues that come from either medication or um, rejection you can have rejection so that's been that's been hard but at the same time I really appreciate you know and care about those people so well, yeah. you talked about that on the weekend at the remembrance service and I'm not sure whether it was you or whether it was someone else but someone said we're here today to not only give thanks for the organs that we've received but to think about the people who who didn't receive yeah. them and the people who have lost some and so I mean services like that um I think I mean obviously they they focus your mind and um I put you somewhere <laughs> where you can um, always be thankful for it you yeah. mentioned to me the other day about um, about the anti-rejection drugs and the steroids, and I was reading that um, the steroids can kind of um, make you behave yes, in old crazy. ways. Can you talk me about? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, you said that. Yeah, so tell me about yeah. that. Oh, yeah, steroids. Oh, especially when you first get your transplant, and you're on really high steroids. Or if I, like, I had COVID this year, and so they put you on really high steroids, and they do make you feel a bit like crazy. But I have a very patient husband, so if I say something. You know, he'll just say, make a joke about steroids, and then we laugh, and that's it. But yeah, they do. They make you feel a bit, <laughs> a bit, just angry sometimes. 
angry, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a bit yeah. angry, but it doesn't last. Like it's not, it's not something that would last. It may last just like a second. Because I think for me, having a husband who's so calm and he'll say something about it in a, like in a, a joking way, which just kind of makes me just relax. So, so it's that kind of thing. It's just something you just get kind of angry and then you're like, why am I angry about this? It's not that important. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> and when, when, say for yeah. someone like you with the whole COVID thing, talk to me about what that was like for you and the fear of, uh, well, A, the fear, that was another thing that I read of people go through this emotion of the disease coming back. They've got this transplant and then the disease mm. might come back. But then to have something as ferocious as COVID around at a time where you've just had a double lung transplant. Yeah, it was interesting because I wasn't, I didn't live in fear. I decided that I'm not going to live in fear because I know some of my transplant friends kind of do live in fear and they just won't go out of their house. And um, But at the same time, when that whole COVID thing happened, I would say that I was a bit on edge um, because we lived we lived downtown and we used to walk a lot of the shops um, because you could still go there. We just walk because our daughter, it was just, she liked to get out. So we would go and just do a lot of walking. Um, and you do, you do think about it and you think about the people you come in contact with and you know, and hoping they don't have it. So it was a bit of a, um, I'm trying to remember when, to, I didn't get it right away. I didn't get it till like the first round um, anyway, mm-hmm. so. Now, yeah. April, <laughs> why is it so ironic that you were able to go back to work? What type of work do you do? Um, I'm a music teacher, so I teach private um, vocal and piano lessons. So you're a singer? Oh, and I'm a singer, sorry. Yeah, we are in a um, covers band, so. Yeah, so singing is my thing that I love doing, and yeah, I just love singing. So, so I couldn't sing for quite a while, and that was really hard. Yeah. I mean, of all the <laughs> professions, I, when you said that the other day, I was so blown away that yes, everyone wants to get back to work, but your work is singing, and it's so yes. much about being able to breathe yes. and being able to project and being strong and yeah. all of that. So just tell me about, now you said that um, we want to talk about Fibonacci <laughs> and what um, oh. <laughs> what Fibonacci, yeah. Fibonacci is your band Fibonacci or Fibonacci, band. yes? Yes, Fibonacci. yes, yeah. Yep. Okay, so you and Nathan and someone else um, are in a band. Yes. 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 And you have a music school as well. Yes, yeah. Well, this is your chance to get Fibonacci. Um, why <laughs> yes. did you call it yeah. Fibonacci? Well, Has it Fibonacci got something band. to do with the sequence of yes. numbers? Yes, yeah. Do you want to explain it? Because we just thought it was cool. You'll have to you explain to it because you're close you... to the microphone. No, you explain it. Oh, I see. Oh, God. My oh, husband explains we'll it. Cut, we'll cut all no. this bit out, Leroy. Hang on. So, <laughs> oh, um, okay. we'll hang on. We'll get Nathan oh, to explain you. Fibonacci. Yeah. Why, why is the band called Fibonacci, Nathan? Welcome, Nathan, Nathan, to Big Little Small Talk. Now, Nathan is April's husband, and he's been sitting here the whole time. And I did want to talk to you, too, about what it's like to be the husband or the carer of someone who has a double lung transplant. But let's talk about Fibonacci to start. Sure. I worked as a school teacher for about 10 years, and one of my students did a assignment for me about the Fibonacci sequence and how those uh, numbers are built into the design of just almost everything around us from the bones in our fingers to the number of branches on a tree to the famous design of the shell, the ways even the uh, galaxies spiral in the Fibonacci sequence. There's a whole thing about the music series which is related to the Fibonacci sequence. Just everywhere you look it's like this thing that's deeply encoded in the universe around us so and so that felt right for the name of your band obviously yeah. i was just so intrigued with it i thought fibonacci band it kind of sounds italian and who knows and usually 
you get the most response uh, from places like uh, we did the um, for a bunch of doctors and we almost like had about four or five doctors come up to me <laughs> separately and they're like Fibonacci sequence oh yeah what are they talking about it so wherever there's any sort of you know <laughs> sort of a high, more more intellectual crowd they really appreciate the <laughs> Fibonacci sequence oh, who, who knew you just have to call yourself you banned something um, you know don't call them call yourself cultures or call yourself Fibonacci and yeah. you'll get you'll get all the doctor's gigs so Nathan tell me about being the support person for someone who has a double lung transplant I know you've probably been asked this question a hundred times but what's it like as the the main person who's holding it all together I guess um, it requires vision and stamina um, you have to be able to really understand that you are here for the long haul and you're here to you know you've made a commitment um, and you just you know there's also just you love that person and you want to see them um, get better and you're, you know you're a family unit um, and you know I made vows to April for better for worse richer or poorer all those kind of things and this is where it really where the rubber meets the road you know you just got to um, you got to come through and and be a person of your word. So um, that's that's the foundations of of, of what's going on there. Um, but at the same time, you, I have a desire to care for her and just see her get better. And um, you know, it's, it, obviously, it was very difficult going through all those particular times. Um, but there was still a very strong sense of hope that ran through everything. Uh, we never sat around and abandoned hope. Um, it was never a time where we were like, oh, this is just too hard. Let's just all give up. There was always joy and there was always hope, and um, that's got a lot to do with our, um, you know, uh, there's a, that's the upside of uh, having a religious background too, is that there is always a very strong sense of hope that runs through everything that you do. Um, and when I think back on those times, uh, in the darkest times when April could, you know, barely breathe and things like that, there was always that connection that we had that, you know, this is not the end, that um, uh, there, there is. Uh, you know, we believed in, in prayer and things like that. And so it's, it was, it was, then I think back on those times, I don't think of them as a, I mean, obviously it was difficult, but it wasn't a time of like, just, you know, complete utter despair or tears and that kind of thing. We, we really clung to each other and we, we clung to our faith and, and we really, yeah, it was, it was quite a, quite a time. But there's some really interesting things you need to know about April. I'll tell you one story. Um, the Toowoomba, people who were fantastic uh, when they were looking after April here in Toowoomba there were some doctors who just uh, said look it's time to go to palliative care you know it's this is not this is not happening for you I really doubt you're going to survive this and one time I came in uh, and I sort of I came in the morning there and I was standing behind the curtain and the, all the doctors were standing around April's bed talking to her and uh, April was uh, you know sitting there with the high oxygen barely be able to talk even and one of the doctors said, look, I think it's about time you went to palliative care. And April went, I believe in miracles. <laughs> and, um, you know, and um, the, the doctor was like, yeah, but, you know, do, you, do your family believe in miracles too? And April said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it was that kind of, she was um, uh, strong the whole time, even though she couldn't breathe. She knew she was going to live because she just had that faith and that hope. And uh, that was one very distinct memory I have of that whole situation where April was uh, determined to see this through, even though she could barely move or breathe. Uh, and uh, the doctors were recommending that she go into palliative care. And it was a bit of a miracle that they took her actually down 
because the, the, the Toowoomba doctors had finished doing all the tests and probably April didn't really tell you what's going on here, but um, they, they called up down there with their recommendations that she go into palliative care. And for some reason, the Prince Charles Hospital was just like, no, no, take it, bring her down, we'll take her. <laughs> so I don't know what changed their minds or, or what that person who answered the phone that day or that doctor who answered the phone down there. There was just, you know, there's all these very interesting stories in the whole situation where things just came together for April. Even to the point where the most fascinating story happened about a week afterwards, her transplant. Um, now, doctors do not tell you anything that goes on inside the theatre. I mean, it's just private, I suppose, and they don't, they don't even tell the patients, they don't tell families, they don't, they don't say anything. Um, and uh, we heard this second-hand story about April's situation. Uh, I have a friend in Toowoomba here who's a radiologist, and she went down to Sydney for a medical conference. And when she was in Sydney, she at this conference she happened to sit next to just out of all the thousand people that were there a doctor from prince charles hospital in, in brisbane and uh they were just discussing you know, what they do and uh, he said yeah i work in the you know the, the lung transplant department and this friend of mine said i know someone who just recently had a lung transplant you know last week patient a yes she didn't say who it was but but this doctor said i know exactly who you're talking about and he said to her if you knew the story behind that, that was an absolute miracle. And I know doctors don't use the M word. There, there are no miracles in the scientific world. But for this situation, and out of our hearing, this doctor said this was a miracle. So I don't know what happened. Something happened in there that they were just amazed that she was alive. They said her lungs just looked like little black pieces of honeycomb. Um, so I don't know why. Uh, maybe they just thought it's amazing that she's alive and that the lungs that they had were absolutely perfect for her or whatever was going on there um, the whole situation um, was uh, regarded as a miracle by this doctor who was part of this whole process and uh, so yeah there was a fair bit of lining up of the planets or something else. And I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 40dB and it's 102.7 FM. It's community radio and you're with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan, on Big Little Small Talk. Now, Nathan is the husband of April, who's had a double lung transplant. How did you hook up with a girl from Toledo, Ohio? <laughs> I'm actually a, a music director and um, this would have happened about... I don't know, 2001, I went over to Hawaii for my sister's wedding and she married this guy whose dad was a pastor in a big church over in Toledo. And uh, at the reception there, I was playing the piano and doing my jazz and things like that. And uh, this pastor comes over to me and he says, oh, you should come over and be our music director one day. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. As if that's going to happen, you know, whatever. And then go back home. And about two years later, circumstances just sort of came around in, in Toowoomba here where the thought of going over to the US was suddenly very attractive and all the, all the uh, pieces just fell into place. And I found myself as a music director over in uh, a church over there because uh, you know, a lot of churches have, um, it's like hierarchy goes pastor, music director. <laughs> And way down the bottom is like a youth pastor, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so music directors are pretty, you know, uh, they're very much part of uh, church life over there in, in all different types of churches. And it was a very diverse, multicultural church. So you had a lot of African-Americans and uh, Latino people. And yeah, so we had, we had a great time over there. And uh, I was there for three years as a music director. And that's where I met April. And 
dragged it back to Australia. So. <laughs> <laughs> and now we made reference a little bit um, when we're expecting Chloe home from school any old moment, but tell me about Chloe and her disability and what that's been like as a journey for you as a family. Yeah, yeah Chloe is, um, she's a f- profoundly deaf um, and classified as blind, even though she, she may see something. We're not quite sure what she sees because uh, her communication skills are, are not great. But um, she's a happy little girl. Um, she's about 15, and uh, she is um, going to goes to Clifford Park Special School. Uh, she has um, she was born with something called hydrocephalus, which is kind of like a brain injury. Um, the fluid, yeah, a lot of fluid on the brain. They weren't sure what was going to happen. They thought that she just might be in like some sort of vegetative state for the rest of her life. But she is also another little uh, determined miracle who um, has sprouted and has her own little personality and world and that she grows up in now and is a is, is quite a it's amazing what she does with what she's got she um she 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 can establish little routines in her life and she does so much uh with the very little vision that she has uh and she yeah, she's a bit of a miracle. And maybe April could tell a bit more about Chloe's thing, but I oh, know she's a bit of a miracle. So does Chloe communicate with you? Do you feel as though she's communicating with you, April? Uh, well, yeah, she has her different ways of communicating. Um, she doesn't communicate with signs like you would think of. Like if she wants something, if she's in the bedroom and she wants her light on, she'll just pull your hand to the blind. And that kind of means everything. Um, like if she's too hot, she'll pull your hand to the blind. That's her way of telling me. So she doesn't really doesn't really get the sign thing. I give her signs, she understands them, um, but she'll just use her hand to pull. Like if she doesn't want her, her belt on, she'll or her coat on, she'll just use her hand and pull like that. Like she'll, yeah. I have to say, um, <laughs> and in the, in a minute, I'm going to get you to. You've written a song about being a, a transplant uh, mm. recipient, and when you were playing the other day, I was watching Chloe, and do you feel that music soothes her? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess because she can't hear, it's hard to say, but I do think she feels the, um, probably feels something, feels the beat, and um, yeah, Nathan has, she likes touching, you know, when we played with the with our band, and we went to a friend's house, who's, they had a house party, and they invited us to play, and she, um, so she was there, and she put her hand in the drum, and really loved doing that, because her uncle plays the drums, and then she put her hand on the bass speaker, so she can feel it, and when Nathan plays guitar, I know she, she likes to touch the strings, so yeah so even though she can't hear i feel like music does still you know you can still kind of like have some fun with her with the music yeah yeah for you as a family having a child with a disability and um i guess precarious health do you worry or do you just put the worry behind you and uh, put it behind (laughs) yeah we just put it behind us like this year we had a big year because chloe was in hospital for six weeks i mean she's just been healthy and strong and all of a sudden, because um, she got a shunt when she was born, and that drains fluid off of her head. So all of a sudden, um, after you know 15 years, because she had it when she was first born, the shunt decided, <laughs> you know, it wasn't working anymore. So um, we went into hospital, and then let's see. I think the first time it, they changed it, it got infected. The second time, um, I hate saying this because, but they accidentally cut her bowel, um, and it was just. And she just was in so much pain. It was just really, that's what's hard for us is when she's in pain and things like that happen. But they were really good to us. They took good care of us. And, I mean, it, it was just something that happened. They didn't mean to do it. Um, and then and then she had, we had to wait a few weeks for her to have another surgery. So us being in hospital and just seeing her hurting, 
um, and sick is hard because you know you just want her to be whole and thriving and um, so that's so other things aren't hard like we just have fun as a family we don't really know you know she's our only child we don't really know you know any other ways so we just kind of have fun and um, enjoy each other yeah now I'm going to run out of time like I always okay. do, but just just to um, not put a, too fine a point on it, all of the medical treatment that you've had here in Australia, in Toowoomba and in Brisbane and um, with Chloe's help, that has all been covered by the public health system? Oh yes, it has been amazing, yes. Like I couldn't believe it because I'm American, you know, and there you, you know, insurance is expensive, you pay for it, like I got mine through work, but it's just ridiculous. But here, I just could not believe from Chloe having her shunt redone and me having a lung transplant, um, the Australian health care. I just thought it was fabulous. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel very it's grateful to be here. It would have been millions of dollars in debt. Millions yeah. of dollars in debt, Nathan says, from the corner. <laughs> All right. Now, we're, oh, we might, um, I might just close it off. So April, I'm running out of time, as what happens to me all the time, but um, I'll just ask you a few questions before we finish. Now, what made you smile today? Oh, I would say something that made me smile today was um, my husband Nathan was spraying the, um, spraying the back with, spraying Power. our patio with water. Power washing. Power washing. <laughs> and our little pug, little puppy pug was out there and just thought it was the greatest thing, was kind of running around, like running in vast circles um, and I just thought that was the funniest and cutest thing. So, that yeah, that made me smile. Well, that's yeah. um, people who are real dog lovers, they say, oh, he was a funny dog. And I always think, what do they mean by a dog oh. being funny? But then maybe that's it, you know, yeah. the chasing the gurney. gurney yeah, because they just right. have funny personalities, yes. I would imagine with the amount of time that you've spent in hospital, you'd be a reader. Are you a reader? What was the last oh, good yes. book that you read? Oh, well, I'd say it's been, um, I do read a lot of things on my Kindle, um, but my favourite book, um, is that I've read a few times as Lord of the Rings, so yeah. Lord of the Rings, perfect. Sam Rice Ganges. <laughs> Lord of the Rings is one of those things that yeah. I've, I have not read, but yeah. my children and my husband oh, yeah. all love Lord of the Rings, and it's one of those things like learning how to play chess or being able to oh. drink straight scotch. I would love to know something about the Lord of the Rings oh, to hold so my fun. own up. And yeah, yeah. Sam yeah. Rice Ganges is the only thing so I can say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Fellowship of the Ring. That's so That's funny. Right. I love that. <laughs> All right. What about if you were a circus mm. character or if you were in a circus, what character mm. would you be? I'd say the tra a trapeze artist Ooh. because I just think it looks really fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's good, and, yeah. gl and glamorous, too. and glamorous, yeah. and I love how they, you know, the trapeze artists. Yeah, the girls, the way they glam up, and you know, and I like that. You a lot, love wearing so. spandex. Oh yes, I love wearing spandex. No, that's a joke. So oh, yeah, well, I, I can see you as a trapeze artist. <laughs> April, um, you're a young person. Have you ever stalked someone on social media? Yes. Tell me. Well, mainly, well, this is gonna kind of sometimes like other bands and stuff. <laughs> Not when I say stalk them, it, it's more like what are they doing? Like especially bands from Brisbane. Um, so that's I'll my that research, secrets out. You? Research yeah, yeah, research. Than yeah, stalking. yeah, yeah. yeah. Stalking's got a bad connotation, hasn't it? Yeah, Maybe but I we. Should rephrase that oh no, but we do always call it. My friends and I always call it stalking. Like, um, yeah, just especially if um, I don't know. Like maybe maybe someone from college or 
someone who I used to know. And so, yeah, so just wanting to see, we do call it stalking, but just wanting to see what are they doing now and, well, you know, just things like that. my sisters and so. I always talk about back in the day, people disappeared. You went out with someone, they disappeared from your life. You never heard from them again. Now you can find them all. Yeah, and exactly. See how yeah. And, you know, not yeah, and people love now. to put all their info out there. So I just think it's interesting. Some people love to just put their whole life on Facebook so or Instagram. And yeah, so you can definitely see what's going on. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Except the only thing is they're doing it to us as well. Yes, hopefully. I think yeah. probably. <laughs> what about um, bringing in an American? You might not be a real royal watcher. So if I was to ask you who your favorite royal person is, who would you say? Um, I'd say Kate. I really like Kate because she's just elegant and she just seems really nice. So yeah she seems like a like a good mom nice <laughs> yeah Very good and what about the song now this is going to be good that can't keep you off the dance floor you being a muso and all yeah see that's the thing i'm usually on the other side of it so i'd say a song like um i love blame it on the boogie michael jackson so and that's also the song when we sing it people seem to run out of the dance floor and it always makes me happy so waterloo is the other one Oh, except Bit of ABBA, Waterloo, <laughs> and Blame It on oh, the Bully. Yes. All right, now speaking of songs, you wrote a song um, about your experience being a double lung transplant person, and you and your husband Nathan have been kind of going to sing it for me. So yes. if I can count you in, or you can count you in, I'll leave it to you um, to sing the song. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of writing it and? Yeah, um, I they asked, I was asked to sing at Brisbane at a um, remembered service, and I just didn't want to sing. They gave me some suggestions, and I'm like, oh, can I write my own song? Because I just wanted to say my own words to say thank you, basically to the families, um, something special for them of my own words of how, you know, how I felt. So, lovely. Yeah. Take it away. What's the song called? Because of you. second chance Not everyone can change their circumstance But some gracious soul comes along and gives it all away It's hard to find a human family that doesn't know the pain of tragedy some gracious soul comes along and helps to ease the pain because of you
nothing like the power of a song to make you come undone isn't it and mm. I think that's um, probably you. the best gift that you've put out to the world there to say mm. thank you April and Nathan <laughs> thank you so much for being my guest on Big Little Small Talk today it's been a real pleasure to hear your story and to see the courage of your convictions I thought the one thing that you didn't say when you were mentioning the vows Nathan you said you know to love and whatever you didn't say in sickness and in health and <laughs> that, that was the most important that was one. definitely the one I should have <laughs> yeah. 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 thank you both so much thank you. it's been such a joy thank you thank you so much That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.